from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Cheryl Kennedy at the Library of Congress. Late September will mark the 11th year that book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. The festival will be two days this year, Saturday, September 24th, 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., and Sunday, September 25th, 1 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Free and open to the public, the festival will take place between 9th and 14th Streets on the National Mall, rain or shine. For more details, visit www.loc.gov slash bookfest. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Russell Banks, whose latest book is titled Lost Memory of Skin. Mr. Banks is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and past president of the International Parliament of Writers. Mr. Banks, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You've tackled difficult subjects in your novels, family violence, teen runaways, race relations among them. And in your new book, Lost Memory of Skin, you spotlight another controversial aspect of society. What motivates you to take on these tough subjects? I guess that's a good question. I, I, I one that's difficult for me to to answer. Um, I think I'm. I write fiction primarily to try to understand what would be otherwise not um, would be otherwise a mystery to me. Uh, would not be understandable. And the process of writing fiction, in a way, allows me to penetrate that mystery. And, I think that um, in this case, um, I was trying to understand something which is very difficult for most of us to to have any insight into, and, and that's basically pedophilia, sex offenders, um, and um, and the world that um, psychological and social um, that surrounds them. And it's a controversial and even in some ways a taboo subject, but it is also for me, and I think for most of us, a mysterious subject process of writing fiction is, um, I guess, because of its of its requirements, really, of honesty and clarity, um, have led me to be able to understand what, in many ways, uh, in my day-to-day life, and normally I, I could not understand. How has your writing changed your perspective uh, about your life? Well, it, I think, has brought me deeper and broader uh, understanding of uh, of people uh, who are not like myself, um, either racially or in terms of gender or economically or uh, psychologically and so forth. And so, in that sense, it's um, it's expanded my imagination, and um, and at the same time, it expanded my uh, my ethical center. So, uh, I mean, and I speak strictly for myself. I I don't know how it affects my readers. That's uh, that's uh, something else altogether. But, but in answer to your question, really, that is how I think it over the years, and now I've been doing it for almost half a century, um, I think that's been the, the effect on me. You've said that your role is as a storyteller uh, versus a messenger, uh, delivering a good story with vivid characters. However, your books always seem to carry a message, even if it's not intentional. Well, you know, I don't have an ideology or a political agenda um, that I'm 
driven by or that I'm certainly um, referring to in, in my writing, in my fiction. Um, but inevitably, you know, how I position myself and have come to understand the world, uh, inevitably that's going to come across. And uh, my affection for the underdog, for the loser, for the outsider, or the marginalized um, is bound to come come through in some way or other. But that's not really a message. That's just the quality of the writer's imagination. I think we, we take that from every writer, um, from every work of literature, from, you know, from Homer on down to today. Uh, whatever the writer's um, sensibility is, is going to be present in every sentence, in every detail, in every line of dialogue that um, the writer um, puts down. How do you bring such humanity to your characters and actually insight into the human condition? Well, I guess I have to keep my eyes open uh, and on those people who are normally invisible to the rest of us, and I have to keep my ears open and listen to those who are normally not heard. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of a, a willed and disciplined act but an absolutely necessary one, I think, for myself, and I think for any writer. I'm not speaking, um, you know, as if I'm the only one by any means. I think any writer worth his or her, worth our time, any writer worth our attention, um, is going to have to function that way in the in the world. You know, we sometimes, I'm sure, to the casual observers, seem to be narcissistic, self-absorbed, and uh, and. Um, Uncaring, but in fact, it's really every writer I know practically um, is quite different from that. It's in fact a compassionate, attentive, listening um, person. Well, let's talk about your new book, Lost Memory of Skin. Well, the title, I think, I'm trying to point to a zone, uh, a gray zone that's come to exist between. Um, fantasy and reality in our erotic life and it seems that over the last 25 years or more with the rise of the internet and um, the digitalization of the erotic um, it's uh, become increasingly present in our lives um, this gray zone and and it's as if we've lost contact with um, you know with the human tactile reality um, we've digitalized our erotic lives and coincident with that is, is the rise of, of, um, of addiction to pornography and, um, and I think also the rise of, of, um, of um, pedophilia and sexual exploitation um, because it's the line that used to exist rather clearly between fantasy and reality is very fuzzy now. In fact, it doesn't seem in many ways to exist at all. So I think that's what drew me to it. And then there's a the kind of social reality as well. I, I, I live half the year in, in Miami, and a few years ago, you may recall, um, there was um, a realization that um, living below the Tuttle Causeway that connects the mainland to Miami Beach uh, with a colony of convicted sex offenders who had served their time and been released, but who were required uh, by the terms of their parole uh, to never live within 2,500 feet of where a child might gather in school or playground or anything like that. Uh, consequently, there is no place for them to live in the city, and so they were being dumped uh, by, the, um, by the city, by the legal authorities, uh, under this causeway. 
And, um, and as I started reflecting, I could see it from the terrace of my apartment in Miami Beach, and I could look out and see this causeway. And that came to act as a, to seem a, a kind of emblem almost for the whole, this whole dilemma, this whole problem, the legal aspects of it, the psychological, social, and, and sexual uh, aspects of it, um, the economic aspects of it. Uh, so the story really grows out of the presence of this colony of men and in particular, one young man um, um, living there, uh, trapped there, um, a, a colony of pariahs. Um, and so the story I'm telling um, is really this kid's story, this young man's story. You easily juxtapose humor with serious and painful situations in your book. I'm glad you said that because I'm he hearing myself describe this book and, and it sounds awfully grim and I, I like the fact that there are parts of it that are pretty funny. Well, how do you successfully develop your comic sensibility? Oh, I don't know. I think that uh, most people actually, if you listen to them, um, Americans are, are very funny in a very particular way and I love to listen and, and, and try to play it into into my fiction. Um, I mean, this kid is leading a squalid and terrible life on the one hand. On the other hand, he has a witty angle on everything and uh, an irreverent and um, an intelligent, um, if not educated, but nonetheless sly look at the world. And uh, he's looking at it from the very bottom, practically, but, uh, but he sees much in it uh, that and the way he expresses it turns out to be fairly funny at times and even um, absurd and, and, and lively. Several of your books have been made into movies. What is it about your stories that resonate with filmmakers? It's hard to say. I've been very fortunate. I've had very good filmmakers work on two, adapt two of the novels, and I'm working with two others right now on two more and they're really extraordinary directors. Um, I think uh, when I began writing at first, I wanted to be an artist, a visual artist, and um, and I sort of entered writing fiction with my eyes open, seeing things. Um, I mean, almost literally. Um, and and it, as I evolved as a writer, I realized gradually that I really wanted to see what I was writing as I wrote. So I, if I can't see it, then I realize there must be something wrong in the way I'm writing and what I'm writing. So I think my works are, uh, as novels go, um, highly visible. And I think when movie makers, when directors, screenwriters, producers, and so forth read the novels, they can see the movie somewhere in it. I don't write for the movies, and I don't compose the novels or structure the novels after the conventions of film in any way whatsoever. Um, and it's the last thing in my mind when I'm working. But I do know that I'm writing in order to see as I write. With the growth of e-books and closing of bookstores, how do you see technology changing the selling and writing of books? It's not clear how much it actually changes the writing yet. It's, it's clearly um, altered and will continue to alter in an increasing way. The delivery of the story. The I mean, the technology primarily is a delivery system. The book is a technology, and um, now we have digital um, delivery system. Um, <clears throat> whether it will really all 
alter how we tell our stories or not isn't really clear. Um, I, I, I expect um, there will be a kind of um, uh, speeding up of narrative, um, less um, leisurely exposition and description uh, and so forth. But that's something that's been going on for the last, um, what, century and a half, two centuries. Um, I mean, you pick up a Victorian novel or pick up Dickens or Flaubert, and there's a kind of leisure and um, digressiveness to it that today readers would be much too impatient uh, to to put up with. Uh, We want to get on with it. And um, that's what Elmore Leonard says, um, never write the parts that readers skip. And I think that we'll find more and more of that speeding up of narrative. I don't particularly mind it. I don't think it's especially threatening. Uh, shouldn't be, anyhow, to a storyteller. Um, it's just a, it's a slight modification and gradual evolution of the means and ways of, of telling stories. The theme of this year's festival is Celebrate the Joys of Reading Aloud. What is your most memorable storytelling experience, either as a child or as an adult? My most memorable storytelling aloud um, is what you're asking, correct? That's right. Uh, well, actually, uh, I can tell you one. My, my family didn't read aloud when I was growing up. Uh, we weren't a bookish family by any means, and so I don't remember anyone reading aloud to me as a child. But I did read aloud to my own children. And um, I remember reading to my three youngest girls. I have four girls and the three younger ones. We were all living together in Jamaica. And uh, they were, they ranged in age then from about 6 to 12. And um, I decided it was time uh, that they um, read the Bible. They were being raised in a non-religious home. Um, My uh, wife, their mother, was Jewish, and I was uh, raised... uh, Protestant Congregationalists, but we were both very, very lapsed. And so my kids really didn't have much of religious education. So I started reading the Old Testament to them from the very beginning. And it was a thrilling experience for me. Um, I'm not religious, as I said, and I wasn't raising them um, to be religious. But here were the greatest stories ever told in the West, certainly, all together. Uh, piled one on top of the other. And as I read the the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even the uh, begats and begats and begats, um, those long catalogs, I watched these three little girls become entranced and just thrilled with the stories, because they are great, great stories. And I think if I had given them the text and said, read the Bible, read this book by next Sunday, or whatever, and had them do that, um, they wouldn't have, or if they did, they wouldn't have been very excited about it, and they would have just done it because they were supposed to. But having it read aloud like that um, had an entirely different effect on them. Um, and I think today, I mean, they're all grown women now, and I think that I've, ha- I've talked to them about it. They all remember it very clearly as an important um, literary experience. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Banks, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me here. I've enjoyed it.
I'd like to remind the listeners that Russell Banks will appear on Saturday, September 24th in the Fiction and Mystery Pavilion at the National Book Festival on the National Mall. Mr. Banks, thank you again. Thank you again. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.